0: you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 1 this morning. Luke chapter 1 this morning, beginning in verse 26 and following. we just want to say to our choir, thank you for so beautifully leading us this morning to our orchestra, to John and to Daryl and to Brent and to Linda, I don't know, Eric. We we just have so, what wealth of blessings that our church has. What wonderful heritage of musical worship that culminates in the Advent season with what we know and love as candlelight. Can we just pause and just thank our choir and our leaders? was with somebody this past week who's just began attending our church, and he just asked, What is candlelight? And I think we do need to be reminded there, there are people that would ask, What is candlelight? And while it is a, a long standing tradition within our congregation, it isn't something that everyone is aware of. And so maybe you're here, and this is the first time that you've visited us, or maybe you've been visiting, but this is the first Advent season that you're here with us this evening at five o'clock. We invite you. Our choir, our orchestra, our chapel choir, which are, that's our high school choir, our middle school choir. It's going to lead us in a time of reflection through music and worship through music. And, and it is a time where we're able to pause and we're able to be reminded in a very profound way of the hope that we have this Christmas season and the coming of Jesus Christ. We hope, if you haven't already been a part of that, that you'll be here this evening at five o'clock. If you have friends and family members that don't live here, they can live stream Candlelight, and we would love to invite you to pass that along to your friends and to your family members if they're not able to be with us this evening. Luke chapter 1 was a story of Mary. I remember it was a few years ago when I was pastoring outside of Jackson, Mississippi. There was a Saturday morning running group that I was a part of, and it had some of our church members, but it had a lot of people from different faith traditions, no faith tradition whatsoever. And I was by a friend of mine that I had grown to get to know uh, Saturday after Saturday, and he asked me what is sort of a stand-in question if you don't know what to talk to a preacher about. There's always sort of a safe place to get, and you can ask, what are you preaching about tomorrow? And hopefully, hopefully, on Saturday morning, the, the person has an answer for that. So um, <laughs> I do. I, I know. I know. I know what I'm preaching on. So Saturday, I knew it was during the Advent season. So I said to him, I'm going to be preaching about Mary tomorrow. And he, he sort of paused, and there was he, you could tell his, he was just kind of thinking through some things. And he said, now, you're a Baptist preacher, Right. I said, yeah, and he said, he said, I thought you Baptists just kind of skip over all the Mary stuff there. And for him, there wasn't, there wasn't a computation in his mind that, that we were going to talk about Mary within the context. Now he wasn't a part of the tradition. It probably isn't a fair caricature that he would question that we would preach about Mary. But what, what is he saying in what he said in jest? What he's saying is, as a part of the broader Christian tradition, they are faith traditions that have exalted and emphasized, mightly say, overemphasized Mary to extra-biblical proportions. And so there are doctrines that have emerged in the last hundreds of years that have uh, been brought to attention that Protestants, Baptists being a part of, have rightfully reacted against. But in our reaction, we've gone too far. While there are those that say too much about Mary, I would dare say that in our tradition, we say too little about Mary. There's something for us to consider about Mary. There's something for us to learn from Mary this person who is the mother of Jesus is an exemplar of faith, is one who is used in this holy, unique way that we read about in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you've found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. In verse 36, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing, nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word, and the angel departed from her. This Advent season, as we focus our attention upon the Christmas portrait of Mary, the mother of Jesus, I want us to ask and to answer two questions this morning. I want us to ask the question, why Mary? I want us to ask the question, why a virgin? Why Mary? Why a virgin? Well, let's think about Mary because she's an unlikely candidate. First, she's an unlikely candidate because of her youthful inexperience. Jewish custom, not Luke's gospel, but Jewish custom gives us a range of the age that Mary might be, There was oftentimes in that custom in the first century Jewish world for a young lady to be engaged by the ages of 12 through 14. It very well may be that Mary is somewhere in that age, maybe even as old as 15. We don't know with precision, but we know from historical tradition that Mary is a young teenager in our eyes, in our mind. Now, this is a problem with it because we superimpose Uh, what our 12-year-old daughter would be like in 2018 or our 13-year-old. And and we really do need to take those impressions out of our mind. Uh, Mary isn't a seventh-grade girl who's putting her retainer in before she goes to bed. This isn't the picture that we should have. Mary's not up at night fretting over the student council runoffs in the morning at school. There's a way that we need to be reminded that Mary's maturation in the first century is very much different than our understanding in the 21st century. But all that to say there is no doubt that Mary has much youthful inexperience. There, there's no way, even with that disclaimer, there's no way around this. Mary is an unlikely candidate because of her age. She, she's not a rabbi's wife, she's not a lawyer or teacher of the, of the word's wife. She, she doesn't have the collateral on the resume to bring to this place with three other children that she's raised. There is youthful inexperience with Mary, but that really shouldn't surprise us. It, it was youthful inexperience that, that, that slayed the giant Goliath. Goliath looked out at this young runt of a shepherd boy named David and said, Would you send to me a boy to fight a man? It was David that got the last life. even as a young boy. There's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who stand up against the taunts of King Darius that you must worship me or you would go into the fiery furnace. Well, we know the rest of the story in Daniel. We know that Darius would look in and he would see one that looks like the Son of God with these three teenage boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know that Paul, writing to his protege in the ministry, is going to write to a, a youthful Timothy and he has to remind him what he has to remind us in 1 Timothy Chapter four, verse twelve, which simply reads, "Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers, uh, for the believers, an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity." It's a great reminder for a church like Dawson, who values students, who values children. We've had this wonderful dedication of a family this morning this beautiful young girl that we've been able to uh, dedicate alongside of her family that one day she would trust in the lord jesus christ as her savior and lord and we're reminded of what danielle bell and john meads our children's ministers here at dawson say again and again that children are not the church of the future but children are the church of today our student ministry is not a feeder system future leaders at Dawson. Uh, we, we have leaders in our student ministry today. You showed me a church that values children. You showed me a church that values students. You showed me a church that has a place for them in the context of worship, values them like our church does and has. And I pray we'll always do. I will show you a church that is reaching its community, As a desire to be stretched and molded, all throughout church history, we see God showing up with youthful inexperience. Some of the great revivals of our church's history. You can look back, go back to Yale. Yale was founded with Christian roots and origin, but there's always the temptation of mission drift. Early nineteenth century, there's mission drift. There is a not the president of the university. Not the professors of the university, but the student body president that called his peers to prayer. And in 1803, the great Yale revival was birthed out of months where students on bended knee asked God to move in their midst. And the testimony is that a third of the classmates or the third of the students at Yale became Christians in 1803. This is a wonderful litany of pastors and missionaries that were called out of the Yale revivals. And I'm here, if if you are an eight-year-old, an elementary school student, if you are here and you're in middle school, if you're here and you're in high school, if you're here maybe even as a college student, there's a temptation to think, I will serve God when? So I, I will really serve God when I get into the student ministry. I'll really serve God when I get into campus ministry at college. I'll really serve God when I graduate from college. And there's always this temporal setting forth, this goal, then you'll get serious about your faith. And I'm here to tell you that he desires to shine his light through you now. As an elementary school student, as a middle schooler, as a high school student and as a, as a college student that has come home and is sitting by mom and dad and brothers as you are on your Christmas break, we're so glad you're here. I want you to know there isn't this indefinite time that he really wants to use you down the road. It's right now. It's right now. And our church is, it, you oftentimes as students become this fuel, that propels our church forward in faithfulness to where God is moving, and oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, the fuel of awakening and a revival comes with those who who come before Him without cynicism, come come before Him without being jaded. By disappointment, but come before him and say, We take your word seriously. We want to be your vessels where you have placed us now. And so we say with the Apostle Paul, as he would say, Let no one despise you for being in elementary school, but set the believers, us, set for them an example in speech and conduct and love and faith in Mary, in Mary, in purity. In purity. Mary's an example for us, even in the midst of her youthful inexperience. She's an unlikely candidate because of her youthful inexperience, but she's also an unlikely candidate because of her humble heritage. She's, she's from the city of Nazareth. Now, you can name some cities, you can name some states, and they're, they're preconceptions that come to mind. They're, they're easy, uh, low-hanging fruit jokes that come to mind. Well, Nazareth was one of those places. Mary comes from humble roots agrarian roots. Galilee is not a respected region in that first century world. It actually is a stigma that's going to follow her son Jesus as an adult. You would you would hear people say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And you can imagine Mary being from a person from Nazareth. This this is a backwoods place, even in that first century world. This is a nowhere place. She's not a priest's wife. She's not a respected lawyer's wife. She rather is the mother of Jesus, as a penniless peasant from a nowhere type of place. This is a strange way to save the world. But this is one of the ways that God works in our world. He defies our expectations and requirements. We oftentimes think even sitting in pews that God needs bigness and grandness to be evident in our world. And we oftentimes equate God's presence with the largest Instagram following that we can find of a pastor. Or we oftentimes equate faithfulness with the size of crowds that can be drawn. We oftentimes, even in Christian worlds, say that God has to have the largest financial portfolio to be able to work and move. Or God has to be able to use the person that's got that corner office and that building at the highest level. Or we got to find the athlete who can put Philippians 4.13. And all of those things are good. All of those things are to be applauded. But none of those things are requirements for God to move in our world. And we need to be careful. And we need to be reminded that oftentimes God is present in those places that are not perceptible to us. That we can't see that he's moving in in small, humble places that are off the radar. And his presence is as much there as it is in, in, in the place that, that has all the resources it possibly can muster, and it's got all the people that it could possibly muster, that the Holy Spirit is equally present in the small and the big. He, he is equally present with Mary here. She's an unlikely candidate. Because of her youthful inexperience, she's an unlikely candidate from her humble heritage. So the question is, is why Mary then? It is solely the choice of a sovereign God. It is solely God saying through the angel Gabriel here, hey, behold, you have found favor. That God has looked upon you and he has chosen you, not because of the resume building that you've done. Not because that you have been on Nazareth Idol and you have now come to this place where you have ultimately won the award. None of that. It is God's sovereign choice. Why, Mary? Because God has sovereignly chosen to use her. He has sovereignly decided upon her and her youthful inexperience, her humble heritage. It is not an obstacle to our God because nothing is impossible with our God. And that leads us that that leads us not only to the question why Mary but it leads us to the next question the obvious question the question the Christian church has stood upon and, and 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 really been definite around then why a virgin not only why Mary but why a virgin Mary hears the announcement that she is going to bear the son of God and the logical question that Mary has is how is this going to happen now I want you to again look in Luke chapter 1. Notice the repetition of the way Mary is described. He, she is described, verse 27, a virgin betrothed to a man. Verse 27, the second part of it, the virgin's name was Mary here. Notice verse 34, how will this be, Mary says, since I am a virgin. This isn't something we read into the text. This is a part of the repetition of how Mary is described in Luke's gospel here. The virgin birth of our Savior and Lord is a foundational fact of our faith. This is one of these first-tier theological commitments that has grounded us and unified us as Christians throughout the generations. This is a part of the great tradition of Christian faith that has been passed from one generation to the next, except until about 170 years ago. Post-enlightenment, largely because of biblical scholarship that was coming in, began to, to trade in the historic confession of the virgin birth for an enlightenment suspicion of anything that was miraculous or supernatural. You can see throughout any... Just, just watch the Discovery Channel documentary upon mary or history channel documentary upon mary you'll you'll hear this once again brought back to the forefront that that you can follow christ and be a christian and really dispense with the mythological origins and we can move past to a place of scientific rationalism where where you don't have to hold on any longer to the supernatural and the miraculous in the bible and we've we've gotten beyond that well, we, we, we follow in the footsteps of Thomas Jefferson, our third president, who had what was called the Jeffersonian Bible, where he said, I want to be a believer. He was really influenced by, by what we know as deism, but he did not have a place where God could intervene in history. So what did he have to do? He had to cut out the miraculous. He had to cut out the miracles. Of the Bible. And that, that still is a temptation in our culture today is to dispense with the miraculous. And I have to ask you what is left? I, I believe in the virgin birth. Not not because we we are able to get the DNA sample of the Son of God and be able to see that there is no genetic line of, of Dave of, of Joseph in Jesus'. Uh, genetic strands that, that's not why i believe that we, we can't do that we don't have the external evidence we come to a place where i stand before you and i say i believe in the virgin birth because matthew and luke believed in the virgin birth and that's enough for me so we're having to come to a place to say uh, the apostles creed uh, the second century third century fourth century it begins to coalesce the christian church around what are the essential tenets of the christian faith There's 18 tenets there. There are 18 statements, three of which are statements of the virginity of Mary. Here we read, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Why do we need a virgin birth? Because we need a Savior. The virgin birth is supernatural, it is miraculous because why? For us to be rescued from our sinful plight, we need the supernatural, we need the miraculous. And the virgin birth is this wonderful reminder that we have through Jesus Christ been rescued from our sinful state. Why was that through the virgin birth? Because his mission was a unique mission. Jesus's mission is not a mission that an ordinary man who has an ordinary maternal descent and an ordinary paternal descent. No, no, no. We can't have that because no ordinary man can take upon himself the uh, humanity's sinful plight, the weight of our sin. No ordinary man can hold up before us a bridge between a holy God and sinful humanity. So Jesus, 100%, God's Son, pays our sinful debt that no man can pay. And as the sinless son of Mary, he's 100% a human. So this means he fulfills the requirements of the law. He, he lives as you live and I live. He, he is an advocate for us, not, not, as, not as Superman who comes from the outside, who is not one of us, but he is one of us, who when he fell, he scraped his knee like you scrape your knee and when he fell he bleed or he bled like you bleed he wept for lazarus death as we weep over our own lazarus who die so he as the writer of hebrews would say he is he's not a high priest who is unable to sympathize But he is one in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So therefore, approach the throne of grace with boldness. Why? So you can receive help in your time of need. He has walked in your shoes. He knows what it's like to to feel the weight of humanity. He knows what it's like to have that bearing upon him. Why a virgin? Because we need a Savior that is 100% God and 100% man. We need a Savior who we as humans can be reconciled with as he is a holy God. And only one person can do that. And that is the person of Jesus Christ who was born of a virgin Mary. And I'm here to remind you here then that while we're saved by grace alone, in Christ alone, that Mary is a portrait of faith in that work alone. Notice Mary's response. Notice her response. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Notice what Mary exemplifies for us. It is a portrait of complete surrender to the plan of God. It is, it is faith, it is trust, but I want to remind you it was a costly surrender that when Mary says yes to this, as she begins to show in the second trimester of carrying the infinite Son of God in her womb, that the citizens of Nazareth would have gossiped behind her back. It, it didn't take Nathaniel Hawthorne to be able to, to come up with a scarlet letter. They, they were divvying those out in Nazareth 2,000 years ago. And, and, and Mary was plastered with a scarlet letter. There were friends, there were family members. We have to imagine that mary 's obedience cost her her reputation. And my question to you is, is obedience it still cost. And so the question becomes, what are you willing to lose for the call of God? What are you willing to lose as you say, thy will be done? Mary is an exemplar of faith here. A faith that says, I trust you no matter the cost. I trust you even when my family doesn't understand. I trust you even when Joseph doesn't understand. I will trust you even in the midst here, because I surrender my will to your will. I trust you more than my feelings. I trust you more than my thoughts. I trust you more than my opinions here. God is asking for Mary's complete trust and her response is, Let it be to me according to your will. She's saying, I am yours. Do with me as you please. There's a powerful portrait of faith and trust in the one that calls her. I remember this past summer, for the last six years or so, we, Danielle and I, along with our boys, have had the privilege of serving at Mont Eagle Sunday School Assembly as a, what is what is deemed a camp pastor during that time. And so I preached on Sunday mornings at the chapel there at Mont Eagle, and then they have what's called twilight prayers every evening. Now, the joy of this is we as our family has has grown, and as we've had Jonathan, we've been able to go every summer to this place, and we have these great family traditions. It's uh, uh, right north of Swanee, if you know where the University of the South is. So it's just this picturesque place there in Tennessee where you can hike, you can go. Uh, caving and you can uh, come to the uh, to the destination of your hike and see these waterfalls where you can climb to the cliff and jump down into the water below and so we've done that with our two older boys but oftentimes especially when Jonathan our youngest was younger he wasn't able to go I mean the the hike was too hard the caving was too intricate there Uh, the jump off the ledge would have been too much to ask of a two-year-old or a four-year-old I mean we 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 have some responsibility as parents here. So. But this last year, as, as Jonathan was five, going on six there, we, we deemed that he, he, could, he could hang. He could, he could do this with us. And so all of those things that we've done in these past summers, so he was able to do. One of which was hiking to this, to this uh, little waterfall and being able to climb up to the top of the cliff there and to jump down into the water that is below So we got him to the top of this place. We helped him get to that place. And I don't know, it's maybe 175 feet up or something like that. So it's a joke, it's a joke. It's not 175 feet. It's about 150 feet up, or so. So no, it's about 15 feet. So it is. It is. It is large. You know, it's high enough for for even myself, as I've done it summer after summer, to have a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of thought. Like, okay, there's some rocks here to the left. There's some rocks here to the right. You gotta you gotta uh, pace yourself, or not pace yourself, but you gotta have a way where you're jumping off away from the ledge there, and you gotta land in a specific place. And so. I get up to the top and I jump off. His older brothers jump off. And so there, he's there to, to, to take the plunge. And he's asking, well, you can imagine the types of things he's asking. He's asking like, am I going to die? Those are the kinds of <laughs> questions. No, maybe not that direct there. But he's, am I going to hit these rocks there? Dad, are you sure that I can do this? Dad, are you sure that I can do this? And so what I say to him, I say, trust me, Jonathan. Trust me, Dad. You saw Dad. I, you saw what I, I I jumped off and I'm here right here I'm I'm right here I'm right here for you you can do this and so he takes a few steps back and he takes the plunge off lands into the water bops back up and he says immediately let it be to me according to your word no it doesn't he doesn't say that but but he did say that See, he trusted me. The, the only reason that he took that plunge because my word carried some authority that was protective and prophetic for him. He, he trusted and he had seen that I had done it before him, that I've done it in the past, and I'm there with him in the moment. So that was enough for him to take the plunge. Now, all of us, all of us in the road of discipleship are called to these precipices where our, our our footing begins to falter. All of us stand before these cliffs, we're having to answer the question: will we trust God with our tomorrows even when we can't see around the corner of our today? Will we trust God? God, that his strength is perfect even in our weakness? Will we trust God that he is with us and he will never leave us nor forsake us even when our emotional stamina and the well of that stamina has run dry and our strength is faltering? Will we trust God that he is good and his word is sure? Will we say, let it be to me according to your word? He's going to call you to a place where it feels as if your footing is faltering. He's going to call you to a place where you can't quite make out the next step. But I'm here to tell you, as Mary exemplifies for us, that his word is true. His word is trustworthy. That where he calls you to, he has traveled himself. And he is true. He is trustworthy. His foundation is firm, and I'm here to remind you there is no better way to follow God. There is no other way to flourish but then to trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to what? To trust and obey. Let us pray. Gracious God, we come to you reminded of the portrait of Mary, in the way that she speaks to our todays. I pray for the person that has never trusted you as Savior and Lord. May today be the day that you draw them to that step of faith that they would trust in your word and they would admit that they were a sinner. They would believe in the finished work of the gospel and commit their life to you. I pray for the person that a, a diagnosis is looming over them. The uncertainty of of the financial difficulties of their life is before them, work transition is around them, the uncertainty of a son or daughter and where they are in a a foreign land as a prodigal is, is weighing heavy upon them right now. No matter what cliff you've led us to, may today we say, let it be to me according to your word. We trust you and we will obey you no matter the cost. Will you find us faithful as your church? Will you find us faithful as husbands and wives, as singles, as students? Will you find us faithful? It's in your name we pray. In the powerful name of Christ Jesus, amen.